Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, member Rex Banner shares his unique path as an anthropology major to venture capitalist. We learned that initially he wanted to be a lawyer. When he figured out that was not a great idea, the struggles he went through from a non-target for uni and how eventually he pivoted to management consulting out of the London School of Economics. Enjoy. Rex Banner, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. No worries. Happy to be here. So it would be great if you could give the listeners a short summary bio. Sure. So I grew up just south of London in a place called Surrey, spent my first 18 years there. I was a straight B student at school, had no idea what finance or any of this stuff was, but had a brief indicator that I wanted to be a lawyer. And did a lawyer? Become a lawyer, yes. Okay. Uh-huh. And this was based purely on what I've seen on TV, which was completely inaccurate. But I ended up going to University of Kent in uh, the south of England, which is it's a lovely university. It's not what I call a target university, but still a great place to be. And I actually ended up studying anthropology, there, which was based on two things. Firstly, having spoken to actual lawyers, they said, don't go and study law. You're going to have a horrendous time. You'll be miserable for three years. Instead, go and study something which you really enjoy, and then you can convert to law afterwards. And the subject which I found most interesting happened to be anthropology. And it helped that it was at the very beginning of the university prospectuses as well, beginning with an A. But that's what I chose to go for. Spent three years studying anthropology and had the best possible undergrad experience I possibly could have had. Um, Absolutely loved my time as an anthropologist. But then realized afterwards that I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. I definitely didn't really want to be an anthropologist. I'm not sure if that is an actual uh, form of path. off. Um, so I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And with that point... Okay, yeah, sorry, continue. You can yeah, just finish sure. the summary and we'll, we'll dive into that. But go ahead. <laughs> sure, well, with that in mind, I ended up doing a master's at the LSE. So going from non-target to super-target. Ended up focusing on economics and risk while I was at the LSE. And that's what opened up the broader finance world to me. So from there to a couple of years consulting, cutting my analyst teeth, and then moved over to VC. I have been there for four years. Very interesting background. Anthropologist and venture capitalist. Okay, so let's go all the way back to the undergrad or the uni days before the master's. You'd said, you know you realize you didn't want to be a lawyer at some point. So what, what kind of, you know, triggered that? And then specifically, um, 
did you look into potentially a career in anthropology? There's probably some, there are some careers, right? Like, you know, that need anthropology. Yes. So did you con seriously consider doing any of that at any point? And, and sorry, and one last question. Was it three full years and that was it? Your uni was fast or did you do four? No, it was three years undergrad, which is the standards here in the UK. And then you did the master's, which is pretty standard. Exactly. Okay. Year on top. Um, so the first question is, why did I decide not to become a lawyer? So I actually had a couple of internships whilst I was an anthropologist um, at law firms, at some of the big US law firms based in London and in Paris. And it was here where I realized exactly what kind of work happens in law, which I, well, firstly, I love the lifestyle of law. I thought that was fantastic. I knew that this kind of corporate advisory kind of role is brilliant. Um, what I didn't enjoy so much about law was the lack of dynamism to it. Um, especially because at the same time, I was kind of opening my eyes to finance and also did an internship within the corporate finance department of a small advisory house. And I was able to weigh up those two ideas against each other. So law versus small scale M&A. After your first year, which one did you do first, law? Law, yeah. And then you kind of, after your second year, was the corporate finance? Exactly. And, and then I did this just so I could go back to law firms and say, I've tried something else as well, but I'm extra sure I want to be a lawyer. But then you realize you actually like the corporate finance stuff better. Exactly that. Exactly that. So at any point after that, were you immediately saying, uh-oh, I kind of, I don't know if this anthropology is going to help me. And were you nervous or you thought it's okay? You know, the structure of this allows me to kind of go, go reset with the masters. So I would say I was blindly ignorant rather than nervous. Yeah, you know, I thought everything would be okay and I managed to manifest it. That's the majority is like that. Yeah. <laughs> It'll all work out in the end. Doesn't exactly. matter if you start early or later. You know, in the meantime, like, you know, kids are getting recruited, at least here in the US, their sophomore year or their second year. Um, yes, I've heard this. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've heard this, but I never went through it. Okay. So exactly. And did you ever consider investment banking? That corporate finance, did it kind of open the idea of investment banking to you as well? Or was consulting always the, the main goal here? So it was yes and no. Um, yes, when I was at, so one of the big differences between coming from non-target Kent to target LSE is just the exposure you get to, especially being based in London to all the different banks or the different consulting houses. And I was, I remember on careers day, I was a bit like a kid in a candy shop where you've suddenly got all these huge brand names that you recognize coming at you and which, what is it that I want to do? And I threw my name into every single ring possible. And um, so I did go through the M&A recruiting as well um, at the big investment banks, didn't get very far with them, unfortunately, but I didn't have the right kind of background um, to be going into them. But definitely was something I did consider, although probably not as seriously as the people and my friends who did actually end up going down that route. And so, sorry, the transition from Kent to LSE, was that difficult? And like, how did you even get in with an anthropology? Like, do they accept a lot of anthropology degree people or do they like that kind of varied background? Isn't it, I mean, I assume it's- I think I got quite lucky with this one. Um, I applied to one master's and which happened to be this one at the LSE. It was a really small niche course that I did. There were only 20, 20 or so of us on this course. And they really pushed the social science aspects of economy and risk and markets. 
So it was a bit of a blend of sociology, anthropology, economics, counting, um, just everything that LSE is known for really condensed into one very social science focused course. So anthropology was actually a bit of an asset for that. I think I would have been a lot harder going into that. That specific niche within LSE. But then yes. once you're in LSE, did you have this, were you privy to the same, you know, career uh, on, on recruiting as anyone yeah. else in the finance? Exactly. Once you're in, you're in. No one asks what course you're doing. It's just school day. And Was it hard to get a lot of first round interviews? It sounds like you did get some interviews for M&A, even though you had the, even though you were in this kind of niche um, social, social studies type um, sub, subset of LSE. <sighs> Like so, what, was your, what was your conversion rate? Like how you said you put your hat in the ring for so many places. Was it like 30 places? And how many? Oh, no. Add a, add a zero onto that. There were. You just went crazy. Yeah. Dropped your resume everywhere and said, we're going to interview with you. Exactly. Reaching out to as many different people as I could for coffees, for just for anything, really. And so you, you did end up interviewing for like MA. You did. I did. Interview. Never at any of the big bulge rackets. I did at a few of the smaller, more boutique places. Uh huh. I mean, looking back at it now, I, I wasn't fully prepped for that world. I, I think if you are going to go into MA and you are at that position of your life, you need to go all in. Yeah. And I wasn't all in. I was still looking at consulting. I was still looking at whatever looked yeah. interesting to me. So what other types of things? So obviously management consulting, because that's where you ended up, uh, banking, M&A, like you said, anything else that was interesting? Corporate finance roles, corporate development, anything like that? Yes, yeah. So I looked at corp dev, um, in-house corporate strategy. Yeah. Uh, I was primarily focused in the financial services sector as a whole. Um, so either consulting for that sector, working within fig groups, okay. or even going into, I guess, in-house strategy orientated roles. And then, so tell me how it went. So like you said, you know, hundreds, hundreds of applications. How many first-round interviews, like formal interviews, not coffee chats, but from formal first round interviews, do you think you had? That's a good question. Like 20, 50? Yeah, five, let's like, say about, about 20, 30 or so. 20, 20 or 30. So a lot. Over what period of time? Like three months? Over about six, six, six months. months. Okay, so it's, you weren't drowning in like one or two weeks or anything like that, okay. No, 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 it was all spread out. Um, the other nice thing about doing the masters at LSE as well, is it kind of puts you in this little hybrid position where you are open for all the standard um, graduate schemes and analyst programs, but at the same time, because you're a little bit of a funny shape, you can try and go for, I guess, more than just-in-time and off-season hiring as well. And so that's where a lot of my interviews were coming from. They were like, we need somebody now, right? Exactly. Or right when you graduate. So. Is it pretty standard even to start working when you're in school? Yeah, so I've had some friends who did do this. Um, yeah. so school year runs from, we started in September, we graduated the following December. But then from around June, um, there are no classes. You're just supposed to be going out and writing your final dissertation. But that's the same time to time when if you are going into an M&A analyst program, you would be starting. So I've got friends who wrote a dissertation whilst they were learning m the bank also working 100 hour weeks at the banks exactly <laughs> sounds pretty brutal um i mean i'm not sure how much they cared about their uh, dissertation at that point once they've reached a final goal but yeah 
that's still pretty brutal. So you ended up with, you know, the a very blue chip name, a PwC management consulting role. Tell me yes. about that process in terms of like the interviews, how those went versus some of the others. Like, was it, did you click like with one of the managers? Did you, were you just more seasoned on the cases that allowed you to break through? What, what was it? So at PwC, I actually did join at a more senior position. I joined as a senior associate, which was, I guess, the next band up from associate, did where the most grads joined. And the reason for this was, again, the LSE. Um, it was the research I did then as part of my final dissertation had to be on capital markets firms. And this was something which PwC at the time were very interested in. So drafted me in to come in a little bit more senior than I would have otherwise had I been coming in as a fresh grad. And for the actual interview process, it was, it was very typical consulting where they'll do it as a group interview kind of thing with other applicants. And we'll have to do individual case studies, then group case studies, and then actually argue it out as a little circle and try and convince the others in the team to go with one particular viewpoint. And then it ends with a final partner meeting. So it's one long super day, essentially, after you've done the telephone calls and the initial, I guess, easier interviews. And yeah, this was the one where it'll just, it just clicked, really. This was it. I think I had, I had a good indication when I left that day that, yeah, it, it will probably offer me this. And Did you have other uh, management consulting interviews prior to this that allowed you to be more polished in the group settings? Or did you, was this like your first like super day for a consulting firm? Uh, no, I'd had consulting interviews before this as yeah. well. Um, this was the first, I guess, actual super day for consulting where it was just a long for now afternoon. But how did you survive? What any tips specific, specifically around the group settings? I feel like that's the most awkward. They can be, but at the same time, it's a great opportunity to just flex something as well, or to try and flex that you are a little bit different. Um, so as long as you're saying something with conviction, really, and you can back it up, then go out there and say it. Don't worry if everyone else in the room thinks you're wrong. And if everyone else does think you're wrong, then just go with the, go with the turn of the mood. Or so go with the mood of the room. If you think you can still back it, then back it. If you're just going to be off. Did that happen to you? Then be adaptable. It did a little bit, yeah. Can you tell us that or give us that example? I'm just curious how you would deal with that because that sounds very stressful in an interview setting. So there are about five of us, I think, in the group. And we were sitting in the middle of the room. We had four appraisers in each corner who were taking their notes and we all had to argue for a particular thing and it ended up with two of the guys in the room arguing out and myself and the other two people hadn't been able to speak yet um, and we ended up running out of time so just at the end it was me jumping in and saying actually why don't we consider this third option here which wasn't my point to argue at all but that's what I got points for, just being able to make myself heard when in a room which was quite hard to make yourself heard in. So there was two people just basically arguing back and forth, back and forth. There was two of you that had been silent the entire time. Yes. Did you have like a clock ticking in your head where you knew like you're running up? It is. It's like, no, I know I've got to say something here. Otherwise, I'm going to get no points for this. Um, and so, it, I mean, it started with us all being given a card. 
and that card had an argument point on there. And it said to, this is the point you need to argue. And that's not the point I ended up arguing at all. I just said a combination of those other two guys' points. But I got pulled up for adaptability and flexibility on that one, and I'll take it. That's great. That's great. So, um, so yeah, I guess in the sense of if it's better to do something that's not explicit on the instructions of what you have to argue for, it's better to do something else and show some adaptability versus staying silent because you didn't get the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. Is that the, is that the opinion instructions? Or? That's uh, that doesn't sound like good advice to anyone. <laughs> yeah. But if you can follow, better the than exactly. Don't be silent. Do whatever it takes and not be silent. Yeah, that's that's gonna be really tough, especially if you have some dominating personalities. Yeah, but at the same time, you know that if you are competing against these guys, which I know they never they never say you are competing against the other guys, but you always know you are competing with the other guys in the room and the other applicants because they're only they're only looking to to fire, oh, sorry to fill a few positions compared to how many applicants they're bringing in. So you had that, was there any other kind of interesting dynamics that played out during the group sessions or during the individual case even? Any like good cop, bad cop, any, you know, people where they drilled you, you had to do a lot of mental math or anything like that? Yes, there was. So I remember in one of the rounds- I, just, I love these stories, sorry. I don't know why I think the listeners yeah. like, it, it sounds like boring for some people, but for me, it's kind of like, you know, puts me back to, it gives me uh, flashbacks. But yeah, no, it feels like a long time ago now for me as well, having to really think back it. Um, I guess the other only thing I'll note, which was me putting my foot in my mouth um, during one of the earlier interviews where this was at the times where Barclays Bank was going through a big leadership change um, where they just brought in Jess Davies' predecessor who had changed the entire culture of the bank and particularly on the back of the legal trading crisis or crisis is a bit of a strong word the legal trading incident yeah <laughs> so what happened there and so i just made a very offhand comment mentioning this change in leadership just as an example of me keeping abreast of the news not realizing that the interviewer a director at pwc had worked very closely with Barclays during this entire transition period and with setting the new culture. And her eyes suddenly lit up as soon as I mentioned Barclays back. And she really, really went in on it, just asking every <laughs> single question she could on effectively the history of the bank, um, why I think Jess Daly is the right option, um, why, why yeah, effectively. How deep was your knowledge? Not not very deep, and you had to like. Uh, how, how did you fumble through that, or did you did you were you somewhat knowledgeable enough to to make it through? I was able to regurgitate everything I'd read in the FT that morning, which got me through it. Um, so I guess if we're bringing this back to good advice, don't mention anything unless you can talk on it, because if it's an interesting point, you will be called up on it for sure. Yeah, it's super interesting. Yeah, that's great advice. Don't bring up anything in the news, anything about a specific company, unless you're ready to go. Exactly. <laughs> and go at least three or four more layers deep, right? Um, For sure. That's cool. Headlines don't cut it. Jenna, you survived. You made it through the gauntlet, the, the Super Day gauntlet. And tell me, like, so at this point, was it later in the, was it, had you graduated? Were you working just on your thesis at this point? And so were you getting nervous or were you 
confident because you had enough first rounds going and second rounds going that you would land something? So this was actually a month or two after I graduated. So like late, late summer? Uh, no, this was in spring. I graduated in December. Oh, in December. Oh, okay. You were fully graduated, like dissertation to everything. Yes. Done. Everything. Oh, okay. So were you nervous at this point? Like, because you didn't have a job or was this, is this pretty normal? Like to be recruiting after? It was nervy. For sure. It was nervy. Um, yeah, it was. Like you become damaged goods after, it, really. you become damaged goods after a certain point if you don't have a role. Like, I guess is a better question. You know, like six months, if it's like, the mo at the time, I definitely thought so. Like it felt like there was a clock ticking above me and every day where I didn't have a job felt like a failure for sure. And especially because my friends at this point who had gone through, I guess, the traditional banking recruiting, they'd been in their position for almost a year at this point now, at least over six months. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was still here living at my parents' house trying to work out what is did you have debt too um yes but not in the u.s sense it's the uk student debt so it's not, uh, not little, i didn't have to pay it back <laughs> no at the time and the clock maybe hadn't started ticking i don't know so on that yet so you're okay so you're basically interviewing here was this pwc opportunity like was there other stuff going on around it at the same time because yes. I think I think the dynamics of having other options obviously makes you a better interviewer because you're like not super desperate, right? In those situations. Exactly that. Yeah. That's something I noticed for sure as well. Yeah. Is the way in which I interviewed when I was much more relaxed. And I don't want to say didn't care as much. Yeah. But almost had that mentality to it where you have to have a little bit of it. You don't want to lose it. You don't want to be arrogant. You don't want to come across as like overly confident, but it's like it prevents you from getting overly nervous. Exactly. Which is like the key thing. It's like, can you settle yourself and perform? Yes, you can, because you realize you have other at-bats. And if this doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. Exactly that. Going into interviews as a whole, I think I've always been, or at the time, I was always pretty confident as well, because I knew that of every single applicant these guys are going to speak to, no one else is going to have my story or my background, which is interesting. I can recognize at the time that there are many anthropologists who then become economists who then want to go and... So I'll be going to these interviews knowing that no one had this same background that I had and knowing that I would be the only person these guys are speaking to. But how did you even prep for like, you, you knew you were going to get the question of like, why, why even be here? Like what you're an anthropology, like why would you even be interested in finance? You had to have that down cold, I'm sure. Yes. I mean, that was it really. And how did you sell that? Exactly. Well, I knew exactly why I wanted to be there and that this was a world I was genuinely really interested in. And if I had consulting. A what was that answer? Like why consulting? Why manage? Why strategy consulting? So for the why strategy consulting, it was firstly bringing in why I'm interested in this particular role. So that goes into the nature of the role itself, what it involves doing, um, which as an answer showed that I'd done my research and I wasn't just blindly applying with my eyes shut. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And then what I would always do with these questions as well is then tack on why anthropology gives me an advantage for this as well. Um, 
which I still do wholeheartedly believe today. I think there should absolutely be more anthropologists in consulting and in tech and in banking and in everything, really. Because a lot of these advisory roles, what they all come down to at the end of the day is understanding humans and understanding the person at the other end of the table to you and what it is they want and how you can deliver it to them. Anthropology as a study is the study of humans. I spent three years studying humans and cultures and how people operate and what people do. And when going into consulting, I would always make sure that I really drove down deep on that point there. Uh, this is why you should hire an anthropologist because all this other stuff, like formatting a slide deck or whatever, I can learn that in my first two weeks in the job. Actually understanding humanity, but it took me three years to barely scratch the surface on that, but that's still a three-year advantage, which I believe I had over other applicants. Interesting. Yeah. So that, you know, I, I'd be curious if did anybody push back on that saying, well, you're dealing with clients here and, you know, yes, you want to understand them. Did anybody push back on that? Because it's, yeah, it's, it's a good answer, right? It's a way to kind of link it. But the question is, is it a true significant advantage over somebody who say studied, I don't know, what are some of the other major economics or something, or, you know, economics, you're still understanding humans in the sense of uh, incentives and stuff like that. Right. So did anybody push you back on, push back on that? At all? So I never got much pushback. And I think one of the reasons for that is when I, when I gave my answer, I never tried to actually compare it against this is better than economics. In my head, I thought that, but I never outwardly said that. Instead, it was more just about boosting why anthropology is great. Yeah. And I think the most important thing there is you believed it. Yes. And so it was genuine. And so like, that's hard to fake. And I think when that comes across, it comes across as confidence. It comes across as like, this guy is a hard worker. He's going to figure it out. That's everything. But I think at the junior levels, even a senior associate level, that's what's most important is. You Absolutely. Know. I mean, I was a hundred percent drinking my own Kool-Aid. Yeah, that's the best. You have to convince. Believe in my story. Yeah. Well, because and then the, the it, it changes the delivery completely. So somebody who goes and memorizes answers of what they think the person wants to hear versus someone who comes in and actually believes their own, you know, their own story and and really genuinely is interested in the role. It's just a massive difference in delivery. It doesn't yeah. sound massive to somebody who's not paying attention, right? It sounds like very subtle. Um, but, but in terms of how the people feel at the other side of the table, I think it's a big difference. That's my opinion, but I think you're hundred percent right on that. I couldn't agree more really when you are saying something with actual conviction, then people will listen. Yeah. And I think you see that almost with the like maturity and age too. Like you see a lot of like freshmen and sophomores from what I were in the, in me myself, when I was interviewing initially versus interviewing after you've done 20 or 30 of them, like, mm. After you've done so many, you kind of know your story, you know where to harp on you. Like, so the conviction and the way you're delivering it, how genuine you can deliver it, it shifts versus the first few times you're a little more uncertain of like <laughs> how everything's going to play into the room yeah. like that. So I think practice is just huge. Um, it is. Yeah. So let's, let's keep going. So you're, you're kind of, um, you get through the whole thing. You get the you get the offer. They say, you have a good sense. They call you that that evening or the following day. Yep, following day I think it was. And what was it? Just hey, we're going to bring you in at senior associate level, or was it something you negotiated? 
So I actually interviewed for the senior associate role. Okay, so you were already interviewing it. So it's just like, hey, we're going to get yeah. an offer. Um, was it an immediate yes, I'll take it, or was there any thought process of, hey, let me finish these other some other things going on? No, this was pretty immediate for me. Um, yeah. I mean, at this point, I've realized that now I am all in on consulting. So yeah. when I'm looking at investment banking, this was pretty early on in my master's and then realized I wasn't getting anywhere with this. And at the same time, what is it I really want to be doing? Yeah. And consulting just seemed a little bit more interesting to me. Cool. So tell me how, how it started. You'd start right away or you, uh, in, within a few weeks or how did it work? So I started pretty much right away. Um, I think there were a couple of weeks of signing all the papers and everything. And then first day, going to the PwC office to pick up my badge and then straight out again, where I put on my first projects that afternoon and was sent to the client site to go and meet my new team. And it was brilliant. It was a lot of fun, actually, just going in and having that camaraderie where everyone's around the same age and around that same kind of point in life. Yeah. And everyone's just there on the same page with everything and just gets the work done and has a lot of fun whilst doing it. That's great. Uh, so it was some crazy hours, as I'm sure you're aware as well, coming from the banking background, it wasn't too dissimilar to that. Yeah. Um, but over, eight, over 80 hours a week, you'd say? Or 70-ish? Yeah, I mean, when it got pretty hectic, it would be around 80 plus. And were they, were they flying you out of London? Were you driving? Was it local clients, clients international? So it was UK-wide, um, getting the train up around, around the UK. Okay, so not too bad. Not too much flying. No, no, no flying at all, unfortunately. Okay. I'm down on the air miles, but <laughs> benefits, whatever they're worth. Very cool. Okay, so you're you're doing that. You you're there for a few years. Um, how many engagements? What was it like? How was the progression as from like the first that first engagement through to the last? What would you say? The first one was a real trial by fire. Just coming in and expecting to know how to be a consultant at a senior associate level. Um, and it was so it's a tricky one to say whether it is better to go in more senior like I did, or whether it is better to go in as that fresh grad with all the other grads. So going in more senior, definitely, it definitely suited the ego at the time. Um, and it felt pretty good to say. But at the same time, it was a lot harder to have to then go back and retroactively learn the core consulting skills, which are taught to grads, but not taught to senior associates, because they assume you already have them. Um, there, so, was, there was no training for you. No, no. You just thrown into the client. Was, and so exactly. who, who was senior to you that was helping guide you? I, I, I assume there was somebody. Yes. So, you weren't like the senior person at the client. No, 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 no. We had, we had, it was quite a big project. We had a couple of partners involved, yep. director, um, senior managers, the whole, okay. whole hockey stack. So I was still relatively junior. Um, but I had a great team around me. and. They really supported me, really helped me out. So what was the biggest, what was the steepest learning curve? Just learning how to be like a wizard in PowerPoint or Excel? Everything all at the same time. So learning to be that PowerPoint wizard, that Excel wizard, how to talk to clients, even how to fill in a timesheet and the real basic stuff. And just having all this thrown at you on day one and having to learn it all as 
There are no training wheels at all. You're playing with live ammunition. So it's week four. Are you thinking I'm going to get fired? This is just impossible. I don't know what I'm doing. Or are you thinking like you're doing okay? I'm thinking I'm doing okay. I'm thinking I'm keeping my head above the surface. And again, great team around me. So I felt like I was under too much pressure. I always felt like if I didn't know something, then and you were, would. you were putting in long hours. So you were showing effort. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You were getting better probably every day, <laughs> significantly better every day. <laughs> it's the best way to learn, I think. Yeah. When playing with live ammo. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you're kind of going in. How did things evolve? Kind of. So that first one was really tough, but you learned it a lot. How about that second engagement and then going forward through those first two years? So second engagement was a long-term one, actually. Um, it was about six, seven months. And it was based on a client site around four hours out of London. So staying at hotels and doing all this. This was what I called a real consulting life, getting a real taste for it. And again, big team, great team to be on. Long hours, but everyone's doing the long hours together. And even looking back at it now, some of my favorite memories from PWC were at around 10 o'clock in the evening once everyone above manual level had gone home for the night and it was just the last couple of hours of the day would be just us more junior people there having a lot of fun getting our food in getting the work done but at the same time the atmosphere completely changes and you got that real sense of camaraderie of doing it together that's cool that's cool and so um what made you think uh, venture capital when did the vc bug hit you so i realized about a year into my consulting that I love this work and this has been a great place for me to start my career, but I can't really see myself doing it for a long term. Mm -hmm. It just it just always felt like there's that little piece missing where consultants, one of the big selling points is you go in, you add value, and then you leave, which is what really sold me on the idea as well. But then in reality, the nature of a consulting project isn't that you go in and you add value. It's you go in, you make a nice PowerPoint presentation, you make a few recommendations, but you're not really part of the building journey of your clients. You're just there for that snapshot in time and then you're gone. And I found that to be just a little bit too unsatisfying for me. I always felt like I wanted to do a little bit more. And the obvious answer for this at first was PE. Because if you're going in and you're buying out the entirety of the company and then you are building it up, um, then that's exactly that really adding value point that I thought I was missing in consulting. Mm -hmm. so first, I looked all in on PE, um, predominantly buyout, and actually ended up getting an offer to go join one of the big PE mega funds. Um, that's impressive from a consulting background. It's not easy. Yes. No, that wasn't. Um, this was actually going to be based in their India office um, in Mumbai. Mm -hmm. So I had a bit of the ethnic connection, which helped to uh, help to go for that one. Mm -hmm. But I realized right at the end of that process that this isn't right for me at all. And it was a, this was a lot harder to uh, turn down this job than it was to accept PwC over other jobs. Um, just because I thought I was making a horrendous mistake to be able to turn it down. But I knew that this kind of financial engineering work 
it isn't suited to my background going in. It isn't suited to what I really want to be doing. This just isn't going to be the right role for me. Um, so I turned it down, felt pretty sick for the week after turning it down, thinking I made a horrendous mistake. But pretty soon after, I then discovered the VC world, which was almost completely by accident. I knew what VC was, um, as in the dictionary definition of VC. I didn't really understand how it operated or how it worked. But as soon as I started reading a lot more about this, trying to immerse myself more into this world, then that was everything clicking for me. And this was, yeah, what's interesting you said about private equity before we go on to VC is, um, you know, you were talking about like with consulting, you wanted more, you like wanted to be involved in the operations, all that stuff. And private equity, while there are growth operation oriented PE funds, a lot of them do more of the financial engineering and they're, you know, you're doing portfolio company monitoring and you help the CFOs and do all that stuff. But again, it's, you're not day to day, like involved in the operations. Exactly that. Yeah. And it's the way you look at investments as well is very different. In VC, we'll look at the team in particular. In you look at the numbers a lot more. Yep. It's a different lens. Totally. Yeah. So you're okay. So you're kind of coming in realizing, well, maybe this venture capital thing is interesting. Um, yeah. Before we even jump there, can you talk a little bit about just how comp progressed? You don't have to give me like exact pay, but just like in terms of ranges, um, how things have progressed as a senior associate in London or out of London and then what that private equity offer was that you turned down? Was it a big pay raise that you turned down? And is that what made you sick or yeah. was it more just because the name was so strong? No, so it would be going to the Mumbai office. So it actually would have been a pay cut. How big, of a, how big of a pay cut? Oh, a decent amount. Can't remember the top of my head now. Um, 30% or something like that? Or? Yeah, around that. Okay. And then, so you you were making around what, like a... I mean, I don't even know as a senior associate, a hundred thousand pounds or something like that, or no, no, it's, um, 70. Unfortunately, we're not comps to a us levels in London. (laughs) Um, so it's about on par with what a first year investment banking analyst faces. Um, okay. So what is that like around 70 ish? Yeah. Okay. So, um, and that's all in. For a senior associate? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, and then that's like, so you're making good money. Um, was money uh, at all a factor in terms of what you want to do next? Or you felt like very comfortable what you were making? I mean, it was a factor in the sense that I want to end my career in a role where, which has good prospects. Yeah. And so hopefully one where I can be a bit more responsible for what I eat. Yeah. Well, private equity would have done that, right? Private equity. Oh yeah, hundred percent. It would have. But I guess the most important thing for me for my next step was one actually finding something which I really loved doing, and two finding something which I could see myself doing for a long time as well, which P didn't hit those yeah boxes for me. It wasn't what I would have loved it. Yeah, and so boxes. How did you just so you said by accident you discovered the VC world? How was that? When I was consulting, um, we, I was working with one of the big bulge bracket banks. They had a huge amount of data they were connect, collecting. They wanted a way to monetize that data. Um, and one of the ways in which they were doing that were looking at third-party solutions, which included some pretty young and exciting startups in London at the time. 
And this just blew my mind how what was effectively in my head, two guys in a garage going to this bike racket bank and selling them a huge contract just for this really cool bit of software they built. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And then started reading up more on this, discovered the BC world um, a bit more. It was just one of those terms which I gravitated towards having had my interest in PE. And then that was it. That opened the door and I haven't looked back since. It just became a mission to get into this world somehow from PWC, no matter how long it takes or how you had about it, it, that was about halfway through it. your time at PwC. So you were already there for a year when you finally like yes. said, Oh, I want to get to BC. So tell me about that path and that journey to, to eventually make the jump. So at the time, this was back in 2017, 2018, where VC World was it definitely had grown in London at this point, but it was a lot smaller than what it is now. It was still very insular, very interconnected, where if you're in the VC circle, everyone knows. If you're out of the VC circle, then it's very hard to break in. So that's how I always looked at it, as VC is this inner circle where it was at the time, and how do I get into the center of that? How do I become a player, even though I'm not working in the fund? So for me, that was just a case of, okay, well, I'm going to go to every single VC event I can see being advertised in London, and hopefully I'll get seeing the same faces there over and over again. I'm going to read up everything I can, every single news article I can on these different startups. I want to actually get to know what it is they do, how it is they're getting funded. And lastly, I want to actually be able to show that I have this understanding in some kind of way. So I started blogging as well on the VC space, which was a really useful exercise, both in terms of my own personal learning of what this space involves, but also when I was in front of actual VCs, I could have something to talk about, at least. I had an opinion. I knew what was happening within the industry, and this was a great way of keeping me sharp on that. Very cool. So you're actually putting in extra hours on top of your job doing this. This yes. blog on the side, which is it's a lot of work, but you're passionate about it. So how were you, I guess, doing this research? Is this all desktop research from... Yeah. Googling and reading other smart VCs and their opinions and then, you know, doing other research and then having an opinion, putting it out there. Um, tell me about how you got into like the actual interview process for some of these or how did you start applying for them? So this one, this particular role was coming in now was actually for a recruiter. Hmm. It was for one of the big London front office recruiters. It covers PE, banking, VC. Um, asset management, head trans, everything. Had you been in touch with recruiters saying, telling them specifically you were looking for VC roles? Yes, okay. I had. Yeah. Okay. Um, everything which I saw on LinkedIn or VC in London, it was like I was back at school again and trying to throw my hats into the ring, except this time I was doing it a lot more tailored, with a lot more laser focused as well, because I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. I knew that I wasn't just a generic grad anyone who everyone's got a very similar kind of background. I was actually going into this with a little bit more to me. Um, and so when so you tell me how you would approach it when you saw a posting on LinkedIn for a PC role, would you drop your resume through there and then that would be it? Or would you do other stuff? Drop the resume, typically write a cover letter as well. See if someone in my network, because um, I've been going to these VC events as well. So I've got to know a couple of different fronts. Um, not a lot by any means, but if it happened to be a 
connection of one of my connections, I might reach out to them as well and see if they can put a good word in for me. Um, but there weren't a lot of VC roles going at the time back then I could come across. Um, so sometimes there'd be a week where I hadn't applied to anything just because nothing had turned up. And so that would be a week spent actually trying to go and read some more, research some more, write some more on my blog. Were you, were you doing so proact like, proactive networking of people in the space? I, besides, yes. the, besides the conferences, were you doing just like coffee chats and calls and stuff like that as well? Yes, I was trying to. So I was trying to do that through my network in particular. How are you building your network? Or like, is that just from the, that was from the PwC, from the LSE network? From both. Yeah. I mean, lovely thing about both those places is people are, tend to be there for a few years and then they go on to go and do something completely different. And what that means is if you can stay in contact with those people, which was easy for me because a lot of the people are my friends so I've been up for these late nights with in the trenches and had a lot of fun with. And you never know where these people are going to end up and people have people's connections just spiral out and it's the best way for it. And so um, did that help you at all with this, the role you ended up taking? Um, no. It didn't. No, that, that was just your recruiter. And so exactly. tell, me, tell, me about that, tell me about that process. So like, how did your, what did your resume even look like or your CV even look like given that you were consulting? Did, how did you make it look VC? Obviously your blog, obviously the conferences you attended. I assume you've got that on there. But anything else, like anything about accelerators or anything yep. that made you kind of like stand out to them that they would even bother? So one of my really good friends from LSE yeah. had gone in the bulk racket banking routes and then into a hedge fund. So he was well versed with the whole deal space, which was something I was missing in consulting. So I actually got him to help me rewrite my CV as a banker would rewrite the CV. Um, actually using the WSO templates, which... Oh, the deal the deal transactions uh, or whatever? You exactly. call it like engagements yeah. or whatever? <laughs> exactly that. So you looked more like a banker. Yeah, which wasn't necessarily a good thing for VC because you don't have to be a banker to get into VC yeah. um, by any means. In fact, some of the best VCs haven't come from this environment at all. Yeah. But it was helpful for me in just framing the work I had done to be a bit more deal relevant. So even when I had worked on M&A engagements, the way in which consultants talk about M&A engagements is very different to the way in which actual deal makers talk about M&A engagements because you're both seeing completely different sides of it. So it's just about changing that lens on it. Um, Interesting. Got me with the CV. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so you feel like that helped maybe get you the interview or helped you in the, in the interview itself kind of frame it as a deal, as a deal, even though it was just an engagement. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. yeah. And so I was thinking about it at this point as well is. And so what were the interviews like? What was the process with another super, another couple rounds and then a super day or how did it work? So first round was a virtual modeling test. Um, For VC, really? Yeah, but very simple VC modeling. Okay. I mean, almost doing the injustice of the term modeling to call this modeling, but it was just building out a cap table over time with different scenarios coming in, and then a very simple returns model as well. Um, so that was all online via Skype at the time before we had Zoom. Mm -hmm. And did they record you while you're doing it? 
No, it was just myself in front of the partner. Okay. Um, just doing was, it. Yeah, very, very stressful. Um, so I'm to do Excel work. You're just with, sharing your screen? You're the webcam sharing the screen. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I love that. Okay, so even though it's simple, it's like, can he even find him, find his way around Excel kind of thing? Yeah, and I had a nightmare with this um, because I was working on my Mac at the time. Yeah. Completely different Excel shortcuts, which I hadn't, I hadn't considered beforehand. Um, little tip I, to people, yeah, who, yeah. Little tip to people who are interviewing with a Mac. Um, if you your work computer is a PC and you have to do an interview or any sort of modeling test on your Mac, make sure you get parallels and you make sure you get a PC keyboard before doing that. You can run in hundred percent, yes. yeah, like parallels yeah. cost a couple hundred bucks, but it allows it to run the Excel, the PC version of Excel if that's what you're used to, and then actually you can plug in your uh, a PC keyboard into the Mac at the same time. It does work. Yeah. And you can get that for 20 bucks. Exactly. There's yeah. no idea what I did. Um, the reason I know that is because have, for our financial modeling courses, a lot of people like for Mac were like, don't even bother like drilling on the Mac, learn it in the PC because that's what you're going to be. That's how you play the instrument. Like, yeah. So we tell people like get parallels, get it $20 keyboard, PC keyboard and plug it into your Mac. If you don't want to get a whole new computer um yeah if you take one thing away from this podcast then that's the thing to say that's away. it <laughs> just a, I, so you had a complete nightmare so you had to do that on a mac excel mac yeah. and you survived i survived just about i mean i didn't do a very good job of it but i can't did be... you say something like oh this is a mac like i'm not used to this or did you say something during the test i did i did and it was just me trying to effectively scramble cut my bases um <laughs> Are you like using your mouse everywhere? Like chat, you could do it like yep. <laughs> using my mouse. I had a piece of paper and a pen off screen as well, just because my formula weren't working. Uh, oh. yeah, nightmare. Okay, so um this model was it more like a, just a simple projection model, like to take revenue, you know. We no, no, it was just a cap table. Um just a cap like, table. It's a cap table at first, and then okay. This person's coming in for two million at the next round at this price. What does the cap table look like then? How does the dilution look? So dilution, yeah, you're just doing yeah. like simple formulas of like, oh, there's additional shares coming in. How does that dilute everybody else? What's the new ownership percentage? And then exactly. the payouts. Super, this. What is, super simple. What does a waterfall look like at the end? Like, what's the payout? Exactly that. Yeah. Got it. Uh, yeah, that's not complicated, but I could see how that'd be super stressful if you were um, fumbling around. Um, okay, yeah. so and then, how's it been? How's the transition been from from consulting to VC? Is it? I assume the pay. I assume it was a pay cut as well, or around the same. No, no, this was actually a small pay rise. Great, um, that's awesome. Because sometimes VC, like when you come in at the ground level, they don't care about your title or where you come from. Sometimes it can be really low pay. Uh, it can be. Um, so the way in which VC pay works as well is very different to PE. Now, this isn't a bonus-driven culture at all. And because of that, at the end of the year, the stage I'm at in my career, I am typically taking home less than my friends in banking or my friends in PE who do have this bonus-driven culture. In PE, the way to really make the money is with carry um, more than anything else, which I'm a big believer that's the way in which VCs should make money. It should be off the 20, not the two, um, 100%. And carry depends on the fund as to who gets it. So very traditional funds, 
um, it will be reserved just for the GPs and the partners. Yeah. Uh, some of the more modern funds you might find carry flowing all the way down to analyst level. Um, but typically, the people who are making the most successful VCs will be the partners who are benefiting from carry more than anything else. Carry being that it's like the performance 20% up over and above um, yes. what you make. So exactly. um, are you yeah, able to share a little bit? Are you are you able to share like whether you have carry or you, you don't have to share if you don't want to? Like, even you yeah, so I'm in a very traditional purist fund. Where yeah, where it's at the top. Flow. Yeah, <laughs> um, which I knew that coming in anyway. And I wanted to join a very purist traditional fund just because I've got a I've got a very romanticized image of what VC is and should be in my head. And this is a fund which is doing things that way. And so that do you feel like, uh, how has your day-to-day shifted? Obviously, you're not at client sites. You're not traveling. Maybe you are still traveling. You're going to conferences. You're meeting startups. You're trying to like... You're in- More travel now. More travel. Okay. Yeah. And like, what's the... Where are you going? Like to conferences? Or are you going to like... Are you looking at like... Just meeting companies, meeting other funds um whatever it's about really it's a very nomadic lifestyle it's a very nomadic job there's a lot less structure compared to consulting yeah yeah it's hard i, I wonder how they how vc funds not not just yours but like how they how they measure performance because to me it's a little bit softer and fuzzier right any tips on that like in terms of how to make a good impression as a vc junior vc associate at a fund just throw your hat into everything, really. Get involved with as much as you possibly can. I mean, VC really is an apprenticeship business where you learn from the people who've done it before you and the people who've done it well. So if you go in with that attitude to learn to get involved with as much as you can, then that's the way to become a good VC, I think, is just to learn as much as you can. No one's going to be expecting you to be crushing deals from day one or to go. Bringing so in multi-billion dollars. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I guess uh, looking back at your path so far, any um, anthropology to VC, uh, any you know, final words of wisdom before we call the pod that you'd like to leave the audience with? So I came from a very non-traditional, non-standard background coming into all this. And along the way, I've always felt like that is my biggest asset in that I can, I've had a very unique experience and I've been able to experience things that a lot of my contemporaries haven't been able to experience because I've come from this very unique background. So if I were to leave one word of wisdom other than the use a Windows keyboard or Mac point, then it would be don't shy away from walking the uncommon path because it's walking that uncommon path which can take you to the most exciting places. So don't feel like you do need to be a target 4.0 GPA on the guys who get into these kind of careers. I mean, it does make your life a little bit easier, but at the same time, it doesn't make your life as fun. Love it. We'll end on that. Thanks so much, Rex Banner, for spending the time. No problem. Thank you for having me. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.